Chapter Four of A Trace of Memory by Keith Laumer. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The two hundred pound senorita with the wart on her upper lip put a pot of black Cuban coffee and a pitcher of salted milk down beside the two chipped cups, leered at me in a way that might have been appealing thirty years before, and waddled back to the kitchen. I poured a cup, gulped half of it, and shuddered. In the street outside the cafe, a guitar cried, Estrelita. Okay, Foster, I said. Here's what I've got. The first half of the book is in pothooks. I can't read that. But this middle section, the part coded in regular letters, is actually encrypted English. It's a sort of resume of what happened. I picked up the sheets of paper on which I had transcribed my deciphering of the coded section of the book using the key that had been micro-engraved in the fake scratch on the back cover. I read, For the first time I am afraid. My attempt to construct the communicator called down the hunters upon me. I made such a shield as I could contrive, and sought their nesting place. I came there, and it was in that place that I knew of old, and it was no hive but a pit in the ground, built by men of the two worlds, and I would have come into it, but the hunters swarmed in their multitudes. I fought them and killed many, but at last I fled away. I came to the western shore, and there I hired bold sailors and a poor craft, and set forth. In forty-nine days we came to shore in this wilderness, and there were men as from the dawn of time, and I fought them, and when they had learned fear I lived among them in peace, and the hunters have not found this place. Now it may be that my saga ends here, but I will do what I am able. The change may soon come upon me. I must prepare for the stranger who will come after me. All that he must know is in these pages, and I say to him, Have patience, for the time of this race draws close. Venture not again on the eastern continent, but wait, for soon the northern sailors must come in numbers into this wilderness. Seek out their cleverest metal workers, and, when it may be, devise a shield, and only then return to the pit of the hunters. It lies in the plain, fifty ten-thousandths parts of the girth of this, to the west of the great chalk face, and one thousand four hundred seventy parts north from the median line, as I reckon. The stones mark it well with the sign of the two worlds. I looked across at Foster. It goes on then with a blow-by-blow -blow account of dealings with Aborigines. He was trying to get them civilized in a hurry. They figured he was a god, and he set them to work building roads and cutting stone and learning mathematics, and so on. He was doing all he could to set things up so this stranger who was to follow him would know the score and carry on the good work. Foster's eyes were on my face. What is the nature of the change he speaks of? He never says. But I suppose he's talking about death, I said. I don't know where the stranger is supposed to come from. Listen to me, Legion, Foster said. There was a hint of the old anxious look in his eyes. I think I know what the change was. I think he knew he would forget. You've got amnesia on the brain, old buddy, I said. And the stranger is himself, a man without a memory. I sat frowning at Foster. Yeah, maybe, I said. Go on. 
and he says that all the stranger needs to know is there, in the book. Not in the part I decoded, I said. He describes how they're coming along with the road-building job, and how the new mine panned out, but there's nothing about what the hunters are, or what had gone on before he tangled with them the first time. It must be their legion, but in the first section, the part written in alien symbols. Maybe, I said, but why the hell didn't he give us a key to that part? I think he assumed that the stranger, himself, would remember the old writing, Foster said. How could he know that it would be forgotten with the rest? Your guess is as good as any, I said. Maybe better. You know how it feels to lose your memory. But we've learned a few things, Foster said. The pit of the hunters. We have the location. If you call this ten thousand parts to the west of Chalkface a location, I said. We know more than that, Foster said. He mentions a plane, and it must lie on a continent to the east. If you assume that he sailed from Europe to America, then the continent to the east would be Europe, I said. But maybe he went from Africa to South America, or... The mention of northern sailors. That suggests the Vikings. You seem to know a little history, Foster, I said. You've got a lot of odd facts tucked away. We need maps, Foster said. We'll look for a plane near the sea. Not necessarily and with a formation called a chalk face to the east. What's this median line business, I said, and the bit about ten thousand parts of something? I don't know, but we must have maps. I bought some this afternoon, I said. I also got a dime store globe. I figured we might need them. Let's get out of this and back to the room where we can spread out. I know it's a grim prospect, but... I got to my feet, dropped some coins on the oilcloth-covered table, and led the way out. It was a short half-block to the flea trap we called home. We kept out of it as much as we could, holding our long daily conferences across the street at the Novidadas. The roaches scurried as we passed up the dark stairway to our not-much-brighter room. I crossed to the bureau and opened a drawer. "'The globe,' Foster said, taking it in his hands. I wonder if perhaps he meant a ten-thousandth part of the circumference of the earth. What would he know about— Disregard the anachronistic aspect of it, Foster said. The man who wrote the book knew many things. We'll have to start with some assumptions. Let's make the obvious ones. That we're looking for a plane on the west coast of Europe lying— He pulled a chair up to the scabrous table and riffled through to one of my scribbled sheets. Fifty ten-thousandths of the circumference of the earth. That would be about 125 miles west of a chalk formation, and 3,675 miles north of a median line. Maybe, I said, he means the equator. Certainly. Why not? That would mean our plane lies on a line through, he studied the small globe, Warsaw, and south of Amsterdam. But this part about a rock outcropping, I said. How do we find out if there's any conspicuous chalk formation around there? We can consult the geology text. There may be a library in this neighborhood. The only chalk deposits I ever heard about, I said, are the White Cliffs of Dover. White Cliffs? We both reached for the globe at once. One hundred twenty-five miles west of the chalk cliffs, said Foster. He ran a finger over the globe. North of London, but south of Birmingham. 
That puts us reasonably near the sea. Where's the atlas? I said. I rummaged, came up with a cheap tourist's edition, flipped the pages. Here's England, I said. Now we look for a plane. Foster put a finger on the map. Here, he said. A large plane, called Salisbury. Large is right, I said. It would take years to find a stone cairn on that. We're getting excited about nothing. We're looking for a hole in the ground hundreds of years old, if this lousy notebook means anything. Maybe marked with a few stones. In the middle of miles of plain. And it's all guesswork anyway. I took the atlas, turned the page. I don't know what I expected to be getting out of decoding those pages, I said, but I was hoping for more than this. I think we should try, Legion, Foster said. We can go there, search over the ground. It would be costly, but not impossible. We can start by gathering capital. Wait a minute, Foster, I said. I was staring at a larger-scale map showing southern England. Suddenly my heart was thudding. I put a finger on a tiny dot in the center of Salisbury Plain. Six, two, and even, I said. There's your pit of the hunters. Foster leaned over, read the fine print. Stonehenge. I read from the encyclopedia page. This great stone structure, lying on the plain of Salisbury, Wiltshire, England, is preeminent among megalithic monuments of the ancient world. Within a circular ditch 300 feet in diameter, stones up to 22 feet in height are arranged in concentric circles. The central altar stone, over 16 feet long, is approached from the northeast by a broad roadway called the Avenue... It is not an altar, Foster said. How do you know? Because... Foster frowned. I know. That's all. The journal said the stones were arranged in the sign of the two worlds, I said. That means the concentric circles, I suppose. The same thing that's stamped on the cover of the notebook. And the ring, Foster said. Let me read the rest. A great sarsen stone stands upright in the avenue. The axis through the two stones, when erected, pointed directly to the rising of the sun on midsummer day. Calculations based on this observation indicate a date of approximately 1600 B.C. Foster took the book, and I sat on the windowsill and looked out at a big Florida moon over the ragged lines of roofs, with a skinny royal palm sticking up in silhouette. It didn't look much like the postcard views of Miami. I lit a cigarette and thought about a man who long ago had crossed the North Atlantic in a dragon boat, to be a god among the Indians. I wondered where he came from, and what it was he was looking for, and what kept him going in spite of the hell that showed up in the spare lines of the journal he kept. If, I reminded myself, he had ever existed. Foster was poring over the book. Look, I said, let's get back to Earth. We have things to think about, plans to make. The fairy tales can wait until later. What do you suggest? Foster said. That we forget the things you've told me, and the things we've read here? Discard the journal and abandon the attempt to find the answers? No, I said. I'm no sorehead. Sure, there's some things here that somebody ought to look into. Some day. But right now what I want is the cops off my neck. And I've been thinking. I'll dictate a letter. You write it. Your lawyers know your handwriting. 
Tell them you were on the thin edge of a nervous breakdown. That's why all the artillery around your house. And you made up your mind suddenly to get away from it all. Tell them you don't want to be bothered. That's why you're traveling incognito. And that the northern mobster that came to see you was just stupid, not a killer. That ought to at least cool off the cops. Foster looked thoughtful. That's an excellent suggestion, he said. Then we need merely to arrange for passage to England and proceed with the investigation. You don't get the idea, I said. You can arrange things by mail so we get our hands on that dough of yours. Any such attempt would merely bring the police down on us, Foster said. You've already pointed out the unwisdom of attempting to pass myself off as myself. There ought to be a way, I said. We have only one avenue of inquiry, Foster said. We have no choice but to explore it. We'll take passage on a ship to England. What do we use for money and papers? It would cost hundreds, unless, I added, we worked our way. But that's no good. We'd still need passports, plus union cards and seamen's tickets. Your friend, Foster said, the one who prepares passports, can't he produce the other papers as well? Yeah, I said, I guess so, but it will cost us. I'm sure we can find a way to pay, Foster said. Will you see him early in the morning? I looked around the blousy room. Hot night air stirred a geranium wilting in a tin can on the windowsill. An odor of bad cooking and worse plumbing floated up from the street. At least, I said, it would mean getting out of here. End of chapter 4